This is what it's all about, girls. We're gonna find out which fat lady's gonna sing this Sunday. Now, girls, I know that I, I promised all three of you that if you did good, I was gonna turn you loose at the buffet table in the back. And I don't wanna put any extra added pressure on you, but Joey's ribs, oh, they're something. They are something special. So I want everybody to give the undivided attention because after Hulk Hogan feels the stroke and I pin his shoulders to the mat, one, two, three, the fat ladies are gonna sing. So let's give them a little sample, girls. Welcome to Keep It 2000, a joke that turned into a wrestling podcast that has revealed itself to be a psychological experiment. We are proudly part of the post-wrestling family. I am Brian Mann, and joining me is my fellow test subject, Nate Milton. Uh, we're just at the we're, we're at the we're at the horizon of some very large changes, but for the time being, we got one more week of the Terry Taylor era. So let's let's soak it up while we can. It's interesting that you mention Horizon, my friend, because there, there's a phenomenon that I, I first became aware of in the movie Event Horizon, where if, if you're out in space for too long, your your mind can start to play tricks on you, and, and I don't know what's going on. Like I'm actually to the point where, A, I'm thinking that Vince Russo is not as bad as we've made him out to be, but also, B, I looked out the damn window this morning, and I could swear, Brian, man, you're going to think I'm crazy. I could have sworn I saw a Tesla floating by. So I don't know <laughs> what's going on out here, but uh, it is good to be back once again for another installment of the universe's favorite multicultural, cross-generational, interracial pop culture podcast dedicated to the genius of one Vincent James Russo, and I guess for one more week, the genius of the Red Rooster Terry Taylor. Uh, yes, it, it, it is a shame that we do have to bid adieu to, to him uh, in just a couple, uh, uh, in one more week, uh, but but then we're going to have some other pretty positive things to talk about. But that also means we're bidding adieu to another gentleman. Um, this coming Saturday, the, the, the Bash of the Beach, Hulk Hogan's done. He, he is finished. Uh, he is over with this company, and so I assumed, foolishly, Nate, how foolish is this of me, Nate? I thought that the go-home show for his big world title match, I thought Hulk Hogan would be on this this episode. He's not. <laughs> why Why would Hulk Hogan or Terry Bollea or Hollywood Hogan, any of the three faces of Hogan we've seen uh, this year, why would any of them want to show up when they've got such big things ahead of in store for them on Sunday? That's a very good question, but uh, it, it is a question that, does, however, explain why our guest is here, even if it doesn't actually work in with what we're hoping. Uh, he is the reigning and defending three-time multiple guest here on the show. He's a four member of the band Editors, and he is the composer of the theme song you just heard. Chris Urbanovitz is with us once again, and let me apologize. 
for making you watch this and there was no Hogan bump challenge there was no Terry Balea this was a real this was a real tease I'm sorry buddy so can I go home then Sure, this is going to be a two-man show. Okay, see you later. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. <laughs> but, Chris, how are you doing? Uh, I know uh, it's been a while since we, since we had you here. This is your third time. I'm guessing you saw uh, Robert Karpolis came back the second time. You had to come back, defend your title. Yeah. I'm curious, during the time that we've had off, how many episodes of Nitro have you watched during that time period? I'm assuming you've kept up. You've watched every one. You've seen every pay-per-view. You've downloaded Thunders. All of them. Yeah, of course. No, I've, um, I've only seen little bits and bobs. I remember I've done a couple of Hogan Bump challenges with you, yep. as you know. Um, it's timeless. Well, the man has a full career. The guy, it can last forever. We did, uh, you know, I earned some money. I <laughs> lost some money. I think I was 3-2 up by the end after you, you by won the By the last time two. we played, this is true, yeah. Um, but we did a, a, a Nitro on May something or other, I can't remember. And mm-hmm. I actually started watching that Nitro thinking it was this one that I was supposed to watch <laughs> before I texted you just to confirm. So thank goodness for that. I didn't get any more. Because uh, that was on my continue listening thing, I'll continue watching. Um, but yeah, back, ready for some Hogan. Can't wait to see him in action. Well, uh, you're going to have to wait a little bit longer That's because fine. Hulk Hogan did not make an appearance at all. Um, I think they maybe showed two <laughs> clips of him um, in terms of things uh, when they were just promoting uh, the matches. But Chris, a, a, a reoccurring uh, theme we have with you here. So when you're here, we take a look at what was happening on the British charts the day of this episode. And it's no different this time as we're going to look across the pond. The number one single in the UK the day of this episode was Kylie Minogue with Spinning Around. Uh, interesting that you mentioned that because just before we went on air, I guess uh, you put the uh, you put spinning around mm-hmm. spinning around by Kylie Minogue on, and I literally got it in under a second. Yeah, it was it was literally a, not even her voice, play. just a tang of that beat. It's not. Can you play a little bit just so they can get it? Because it's not even the it's not even the song. It's mm-hmm. like a little bit of a weird intro flickering thing going on. So I'm surprised that I got it, but um, happy as, at the same time. Great song. <laughs> Uh, this might surprise you, Brian, man, but I am uh, keenly aware of the, the catalog and the work of one Kylie Minogue. Uh, due to my time uh, when when I was living over in Japan, one of the options on the, the cable that they provided on the base was uh, Star Sports. And they had a couple different uh, star channels, too, as well. And I think one of them was a music channel. And for whatever reason... I was inundated with a lot of Robbie Williams, uh, so I'm familiar with a lot, with a lot, with a lot of Robbie Williams. Uh, there, there was a, there was some Kylie Minogue, and there was there was uh, somebody else that that was pretty pretty hot at the time. But uh, Robbie and Kylie stood out uh, front of mind, and I don't remember this song in particular, but I do remember she had like a remake of the Locomotion, and then she also <laughs> that was had in this like song. 1991 though. <laughs> Hey, they still they still played it on this particular channel. I guess it was, it was Evergreen. Ten years later, still a hit. Uh, and then the, the other one was, and it's funny because we were talking about the many faces of one Terry Balea, but she had a song called "I Think You Did It Again," and the whole conceit of the video was that there were like four or five different Kylie Minogues that were in a lineup at a police station, and they were playing off of each other and it, it was like i didn't know because that was the first video i saw her in so i thought she was a band like they got these random 
similarly looking uh, <laughs> quadruplets maybe like uh, are they trying to be the spice How girls the film multiplicity was this like could, could it have been a conceivable oh, tie-in ooh, that's that's a great question that's a great question because this would have been let's see i was in japan this would have been 90 early 99 maybe late 99 uh so maybe concurrent to this so uh to, to the wcw we're talking about at the time so from between 99 and 2000 so uh, i would i would assume it was at the peak of people's fascination whether it's the three faces of foley or the four faces of bolea uh, now we've got the the five faces of Kylie Minogue. So I, I love how everything ties together. I was thinking of all of, it's all I was thinking of, all of Ed Leslie's gimmicks as well. It's all in one. Uh, maybe that maybe that single was only big in Japan because I don't remember that one at all. But if you can if you can send that to me, then I would very much like to see it because I do like a bit of Kylie. And, and of course, me being younger than you two, my my biggest exposure to Kylie was uh, the Street Fighter film that came out in the early nineties. Mm. Nice. <laughs> Uh, the Street Fighter film, which also had the great—I uh, want to say it was that had Deion Sanders had a song on the Street Fighter soundtrack. God, that guy produced by MC Hammer. He was a two-sport athlete, but he was uh, definitely not a a two a two-avenue entertainer because uh, he tried to act too, didn't he? He tried to act. Uh, his reality show is is actually pretty decent, but when he's trying to play a character, it it just doesn't work because every character is basically primetime Deion Sanders, which was a character in and of itself. How did he never get into pro wrestling? I feel like he would have been a it's such an easy slot oh. for him. They probably couldn't pay him enough because he, yeah. you know, one of his hit singles was "Must Be the Money." So Dion was obviously <laughs> all about that money. So I, I think Vince McMahon probably lowballed him, and Dion was like, you know, no, I'm, I'm gonna. Uh, stick to what I know and, and play football and play baseball and make hot singles for the Street Fighter soundtrack. We have waited uh, long enough. Let's go ahead and get into this week's Nitro. Boris Hogan just hit the ring. Hey, hey, I'm going to give you a tighter shot at this Jeff Jarrett tonight. The stroke, the stroke right on the chair. One, two, three. The show begins with highlights from last week's shows, including Horace Hogan actually receiving a world title match in the most thunder match of all time. <laughs> we then go into Ernest Miller's office, where he is on the phone explaining to Eric Bischoff that he has suspended Scott Steiner for a week. Mike Awesome then storms in and asks if Miller has, quote, made the call. So... We've explained that Steiner will not be here this week. He has been uh, suspended because he used the Steiner recliner. Kind of. Uh, Scott Steiner had actually legitimately been suspended uh, this week. He was angry that Terry Taylor told him to do the job the week before on Thunder, and he threatened to kick his ass. His punishment, Terry Taylor sent him home for a week suspension with pay. Yes, Scott Steiner's... Punishment was a week paid vacation during 4th of July weekend. So Scott Steiner is not on this week's episode, guys. <laughs> Outside the building, we see four ambulances arrive. The announcers ask if this was the request that Mike Awesome made. The show proper opens with Tank Abbott going to the DJ booth and running off DJ Ran. Nate, I already feel like I know what your silver lining of the week is going to be. Oh, uh, this was wonderful. This was like we had our Ricky Rackman earlier in the year, and and you know you can't have one without the other. You know it's Rackman and Rand. That's what I think about when I think of 2000s WCW Nitro, and and so yeah, it was it was beautiful to see this DJ Rand cameo. This is going to be a weird comparison, but but in many ways, WCW is a lot like the XFL. I think they had some really good ideas. It's you understand why they failed. 
But some of the AXFL's biggest ideas were later taken by the NFL. Um, yeah. Chris, how, as a musician yourself, how do you feel about the idea of there being an actual live DJ at a wrestling show? Because I've got to say, having been to small ones, large ones, I, I don't think this would be the worst idea. At a live event, I think it's a good idea. Yeah. I mean, it works in um, it works in basketball, for example. You know, whenever I go and see the Nets play, there's always some guy. Uh, he's playing shit music but it's that's irrelevant but you know like when i go to ring of honor for example there's always like a good soundtrack going on mm-hmm. i don't know why they couldn't do that be, uh, you know between matches maybe there isn't enough time but uh i think it yeah it yeah. makes sense to me yeah well, i don't mind that i mean i'd rather it wasn't tank abbott i wish it was somebody else <laughs> but that's just my opinion well because you go to a lot of times now uh if you go to wwe there's no house music no um you go to a, 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 an indie show, the promoter plugs in his fucking phone, and you're going to get the worst of, like, mid-2000s WWE entrance things. Yeah. I would like it if there was, like, a dude who actually knows how to hype a crowd and is and is making sure people stay up and energetic in between matches. I don't think it's the worst idea. Yeah. Um, if I, I'm not mistaken, Nate, they never really embraced DJ Rand as an on-screen character. I think in 99, they'd show him coming in and out of breaks, but here in the year 2000, we're being shown, clearly, DJ Rand is still here. Uh, we're just not seeing any of him on the show. <laughs> no, yeah, and it, it's, fun, it's funny, because, um, like, I I thought that that was a cool element, you know, DJ Rand, and to a lesser extent, you know, the Ricky Rackman, and of course, you know, Chris and I have opined on this program about our love for the Nitro Girls. I thought those were all cool elements in their own right, but for whatever reason, the mix just didn't quite work. Yeah, they, and they also didn't quite always pull them off, and that's the thing. Sometimes I think a shitty execution can be confused with a shitty idea. I think Nitro had a lot of good ideas. They just executed them rather terribly. So do you think this would work at Raw then? Because whenever I've stopped going to, I stopped watching Raw about two two years ago, and I stopped going to Raw events about three or four, taped events in yeah. general, about three or four years ago. And I just remember it being a long three hours. Yes. But the worst thing was when they went to commercial and just nothing happened yes. for ages. And so that would be a great time to put... Well, what happens now, because I was at Raw 25, and something's changed between when you went, is that they do a lot more multiple segment matches at WWE. Mm. And so during these these breaks, it's just matches that are, they're not doing anything because they know they're a commercial. So they're just like, you get a two-minute headlock. Do they not have picture-in-picture now, though? Um, On SmackDown sometimes, but on Raw, I don't think they do. But when you're there, just uh, the match just suddenly gets very boring, or you get like ads, like they'll play you a commercial for some new DVD. It just really kills the crowd Mm. in between. Whereas, uh, Nate, did you ever go to a Nitro that had DJ Ran at it? Because I remember him being there, and it definitely kept the crowd, you know, hyped. There also weren't cell phones uh, to distract people. Uh, (laughs) But no, I thought DJ Ran did his job pretty well. No, I was never at a night show with DJ Rand, but I was at an Impact show that had Jeremy Borash and Taz as the hype man in between <laughs> segments during the commercial breaks. Which you know, you know, we we've talked about uh, Taz and Borash on this show before. We did review an Impact back in the day, but I thought that was actually one of the cooler aspects of being at the Impact tapings because those were long tapings. I want to say at the time. Yeah. They did two shows, so you know that was at least four hours that we had to be in this building. And every commercial break, you'd have Borash hyping up the crowd and Taz coming out with some giveaways and stuff like that. And it it's a little hokey, but the crowd was never at a point where we died, yeah. you know, during the commercial break. So you know, it it worked. But what does it say about an impact taping that Taz and Borash were the coolest things there? <laughs> 
You see, Don West. Hey, Jeremy Borash is a national treasure, Brian. Man. So uh, there was a segment here. DJ Ran was on screen for maybe five seconds. Um, Tank makes a joke that DJ Ran lived up to his name. Abbott then introduces the greatest rock band in the world, Three Count. We then cut to a fan holding a sign that said Three Count. Count sing, count dance, count wrestle. <laughs> I honestly didn't know if this was creative or not. That doesn't count sense to me <laughs> at all. <laughs> I guess it's trying to be a pun, but there's another... I don't know if I was going to make a cunt joke there, but I'm not going to. Let's move on. <laughs> Evan Courageous attempts to cut a promo, but Tank tells the boys to shut up and sing. Three Count performs, and Tank dances over in the booth. The boys are then cut off by the Young Dragons, and we get a six-man tag. The dragons are in control early, with Jamie's son hitting a Frankensteiner on the outside. Shane Helms injures his arm and is sent to the back. This causes Tank Abbott to then get into Three Count's corner. Uh, everyone save for Jimmy Yang does a dive onto the floor, before, but before Yang can join in, Tank comes in and gives him a right hand. Then Shannon Moore gets the pin. Um, these groups always have good matches. I know we've only seen them face off a couple times, but I feel like... I don't know. I just feel like we keep seeing these two teams facing each other. Even though when I look at the results, this is only the third time they faced each other this year. Um, I just wish there was some sort of storyline between these two groups that wasn't this fucking Tank Abbott shit. The storyline writes itself, doesn't it? Because the Young Dragons, I haven't seen much of them, but they seemed awesome to me. I was really enjoying them. Mm -hmm. And then, um, so they're like the serious kind of workers from Japan. And then you've got like the bubblegum pop you know, girl-friendly uh, band from America. So there's there's a natural conflict there which could yeah. work, but I guess nope. it's all about Tank Abbott dancing about Tank on the Abbott. outside. And you know what? I like it. <laughs> I do so like you it. like this Tank Abbott? <laughs> I like Tank Abbott dancing. <laughs> I don't know why. I just I, I think he's better than I ever dreamed he could possibly be. Uh, I also just need to point out in the in the crowd there was a great sign, very much of its time, basic classic. It was simply, Tim is gay. <laughs> I enjoyed that. I've noticed a lot of is gays uh, on of all these gays. shows. I, I'm sure, yeah. It was that time, wasn't it? <laughs> that is blatantly unfair to Tim if, so if Tim unfair. did not want to make that announcement. Exactly. Come on. It's, let's it's him, not your decision. Let unless Tim work on was, his own schedule. Unless that was Tim. It could and be he Tim. Was like, he was speaking like mm. The Rock in third Ooh. person. He was like, Tim is gay. <laughs> and he was speaking to his parents. <laughs> uh, this, this segment was... Again, you mentioned it, Brian. We've seen a lot of three count and or Young Dragons matches to open shows lately, and there's a reason for that. I think they get the crowd involved. They're they're good at what they do. Obviously, I'm a big fan of Kaz Hayashi. I think they they really missed the boat on how far they could have pushed that guy. Because uh, I think out of all of the Young Dragons, Kaz was was the the best one of the three. Uh, but then we get the element of Tank Abbott, and I'm torn because on the one hand, you and I have talked about Tank Abbott and how there was something there that they that they could have capitalized on. And, and we talk about that one Nitro where they built the whole show around Sid and Tank and how that came across as being something important. And now he's this comedy character. But to Chris's point, I died laughing <laughs> when I saw Tank Abbott dancing because they're just... I think it's the fact that he's committing so hard to this. Like, Tank Abbott is not phoning it in. He is breaking out his best wedding reception dance moves, and I'm here for it. He's actually pretty good, right? It's not just me that thinks that, right? He's going to do yeah, some no, six-step and all that. It's funny, and it's I'm, it's just one of those things that... Um, <clears throat> I, think I, I think I've cracked the code on, on Vince Russo, because even though Vince Russo did not write this episode, this was his idea. Um, 
Vince Russo would be like the perfect social media producer for WWE. Like, if we got to see Tank Abbott dancing in a YouTube video, that'd be great. Should it be a part of the video? Like, that's why there's a difference between Braun Strowman's Instagram and Braun Strowman on television. Yeah. You know, like, we wouldn't be able to separate those worlds. And this was funny. And if this had been on, you know, the WCW YouTube page of like, oh my goodness, look at Tank Abbott dancing with three count. That's a funny thing. Maybe, you know, 20,000 people see it online. When you're putting it in the body of the show and you're totally fucking ruining this character, ah. It's also the opening segment of the go-home show. Yes. To a big pay-per-view. Which, it, this was the go-home show, and unlike anything we've seen pretty much all year, they actually did feature Max Graphics and did tell us what the matches were that weekend. So I got to give them a little bit of credit on that one, Nate. Yeah, I, I think we got to give them credit that they had graphics. Now, the quality of the graphics? Yes. <laughs> we can debate about that, but <laughs> it's baby steps. <laughs> Backstage, Kevin Nash is shown arriving for work relatively on time by his standards. <laughs> Elsewhere, the cat consoles the defeated young dragons and tells them to come to his office. Now, I'm not mistaken, this never paid off, did it? <laughs> we never came back to this ever. So what you got your ass kicked out there, Dre? That don't mean anything. You guys showed me a lot of good stuff out there. I, got, I tell you what, I got a proposition for you guys. Hi. Come on with me. Come on. Hi. Elsewhere, Mike Awesome bumps into a backstage employee and power bombs him through a table. So, get ready for a show long storyline, guys. A tribute video for the Outsiders is then shown. Um, I might be wrong, but I'm pretty certain this is the last time that Scott Hall's face is actually going to be seen on this show. We then cut to the production truck where Goldberg runs in and demands the crew turn this video off. The crew grants Goldberg's wish and stops the video. In his locker room, Nash looks at his monitor pissed off and walks away. Um, somehow, someway, Nate, the WCW production crew is becoming the most exposed faction in this company. They are getting screen time every week. Yeah, I was going to say, this is this is my first flag on the play of the, the week, Brian, because I've worked in TV production before. I'm sure, you know, uh, you obviously have worked in TV production. I'm sure Chris has had experience mm. with productions like this before there's a conscious decision by a director or a td to take that shot of goldberg in the truck yeah and these men getting accosted who said hey goldberg's in here berating us somebody take that shot it's a good and also why is that camera there yeah <laughs> they're just following goldberg backstage maybe no the the camera was already in the trunk it was already and goldberg the opened the door yes okay there's a preset I, yeah thing. didn't think about that has this been going on regularly in the recent weeks because i quite like you know going backstage and going into the truck if it makes sense the last two weeks we have been in the production truck at some oh, point oh goodness okay so. <laughs> forget it yeah, and i think you know oh. you could have done this if we're watching like we're at home we're watching this show and we see the nwo video and then all of a sudden it cuts out or we get static and they're like well tony's like what the what the hell's going on and then we get a shot of the truck then yeah. and it it's still there's there's still a bit of a logic gap in why would the director take that shot, but it makes more sense than let's cut from a video that's playing to Goldberg yeah. walking into a truck, or if Goldberg like came out into the arena with a microphone yeah. and demanded they turn it off. I could get that. There's an easy solution. It's like Goldberg comes into the arena and mm. then somebody films him coming in and then he makes a beeline for the truck. He yeah. sees something yeah. on TV and he goes, oh, I don't want that. And then they follow him into the truck and that's yeah. the way you do it. You know, why, like you said, why Or Nash come comes out and Nash starts to play the video himself. Yeah, there you go. You know, uh, but hey, 
Anyway. Coulda, woulda, shoulda, 18 years ago. Yeah. In the arena, Goldberg comes out dressed for a day at the golf course. I just had the same thing. I was thinking the same thing. Just done 18 holes at Augusta. I was just saying, what are you wearing? You're a killer. Goldberg says he's heard as much of the outsider's crap as he can stand and that Hall and Nash are two of the biggest pieces of garbage he's ever seen. Goldberg says the outsiders have undermined WCW, yet the fans keep cheering, turning this promo into a shoot. <laughs> Goldberg says it's his time and that everyone's blood will be on the fans' hands. Kevin Nash then comes out and says he's got four words for Goldberg. The first two are, it's my time, and the second two are, why wait? Again, these guys are not very good at counting their words in this company. Uh, the two then charge at each other, but security breaks it up. The cat runs out and demands they cut to the commercial. Back from break, we get footage from the break with the entire locker room empty to separate Nash and Goldberg. This looked like a hell of an angle, and I can't imagine why they chose not to show it, you know, like on television. Oh, and also, just for good measure, Mike Awesome powerbombs some security guard. Um, this looked like a hell of an angle. It reminded me of that great Taker Brock pull apart they did a while ago, especially where this thing goes later in the evening. Why do we not just do a massive pull apart between these guys? Let it take up three, four minutes and let that be the whole exposure of these guys and maybe even build up to it. Let it be the main event. Um, but yeah, this looked really fucking cool, but we just got highlights of it. And again, the logic doesn't make sense. Why would I get that Cat doesn't want to show the TV, show these guys touching on TV, but then why would he show a replay when he comes back? <laughs> <laughs> oh yes this this entire episode there are there are issues i have with the wcw production team but the the biggest takeaway from this segment with uh goldberg and nash besides goldberg's trendy attire uh was where's the lie like everything bill goldberg said he's supposed to be a heel He's supposed to be somebody we hate, but everything he said, if you're looking at the context of WCW and, the, and recent history, was true uh, in regards to the NWO and Hall and Nash. Like, why why would I cheer for Nash over Goldberg, especially when his promo is, is making 100% sense? I thought the same thing, because uh, I obviously haven't been watching as religiously as you guys. The <clears throat> Excuse me. The only reason that I realized that Goldberg was... A heel was because there was a Soldberg sign in the crowd, mm -hmm. another great pun, <laughs> uh, with a dollar sign on the S, which is another lovely touch. Um, but again, like you were saying, Nate, he's not really doing anything wrong. He's not really acting like a heel. He's just being a little bit more confrontational than normal. But that was his thing anyway. A second ambulance drives away with another Mike Awesome victim. The cat's In the cat's office, the cat speaks to Eric Bischoff, who is berating him for allowing Nash and Goldberg to touch on television. Miller says he doesn't want to give those rednecks anything for free because Bischoff always told him to make the audience pay for it. Clearly, this is a new philosophy for Eric Bischoff. <laughs> in the locker room, Terry Funk gives Johnny the Bull a prep talk for his next match. Funk warns him that he's facing a real tough guy. Funk then blasts Johnny with a trash can, revealing that our next match is Terry Funk versus Johnny the Bull. You're ready for your opponent. Yeah, but he's my opponent. Hey, he's a real tough guy, Johnny. Don't forget it. You need something in that ring. You better get that trash can. Go get the trash can. Your opponent. And he wants Johnny the Bull. These two then get in the ring, and uh, Bull doesn't get any offense as Funk wails on him with chair shots. The announcers question if this is a lesson or if Funk is trying to take Bull's title shot at the bash. These two brawl around the ring, and Johnny finally gets in some chair shots of his own. Funk takes an unprotected chair shot, and the two brawl into the crowd. 
Johnny the Bull then gives a pile driver onto the chair in the crowd, but accidentally kicks the chair away before he finishes the move. This, however, is not the finish. No, a, a much bigger move was still in uh, was still in store. Rather, a bleeding Terry Funk just gets up and makes his way to ringside. Johnny the Bull puts a chair on his face, and then Johnny goes in the ring for the move of his career. Johnny the Bull jumps up for a springboard, stops himself, jumps back down, thinks better of it, decides to try the spot again, and he proceeds to execute the stupidest fucking move you have ever seen, a springboard leg drop to the floor. Um, the bull instantly grabbed his dick in pain because he had legitimately busted his bladder, strained his pelvis, and torn his urethra. Johnny can barely move from the pain, but he still finishes the match. This was only the stupidest move in like the last, like since he did the pile driver on the floor on the chair. Yes. Like 30 seconds earlier. Why would you use a chair? I'd rather get pile drived on a chair than onto a, onto a <laughs> right. concrete floor. And then he kicked so, it away by mistake. And then he kicked it away because he obviously realized his mistake. And also a big enough move that should have been the finish, but. Exactly. So why is he just. Is it in competition with himself to do the most stupid move? Because he's hit two already. So I read a move. uh, So I read an interview at the time. This was Johnny the Bull's first singles match in WCW. Ever? Ever. He'd only done tags. He's also only been in the business for a year and a half. And when he was told... (laughs) When he was told that they're going to be putting him over Terry Funk, he wanted to make it big. So he thought something big would be this springboard leg drop to the floor onto a chair. (laughs) He didn't tell anyone about it ahead of time. It's hands-free And he as well. split his dick open. It's a hands-free springboard as well. It's like yes. Rey Mysterio style. He just jumped up without even using his hands. So even though Johnny can barely move, he is just in crippling pain. Mm. He forces himself up on the chair to walk with it. He limps back in the ring where he barely ducks a chair shot, but Funk gets the sloppiest yet most painful looking inside cradle you've ever seen. I've never thought an inside cradle could look painful, but this one did. <laughs> The bull kicks out and lands an unprotected and lands an unprotected chair shot of his own on Funk, who kicks out rather than just let this guy with his broken dick get looked at. The bull then DDTs Funk on a steel chair for the win. After the match, Funk tosses a chair up in the air only for it to fall back down and land on his fucking head. Perfect metaphor for this match. Funk tends to Johnny as the announcers say that he's ready for his hardcore title match on Sunday. In reality, the only thing he was ready for was a three-month absence. Johnny the Bull will not be seen until September. Unable to walk, two trainers are then shown carrying Johnny to the back. Yeah, Johnny who won the match. Yes. Yeah, it might be worth noticing after the three count, Terry Funk got up first. Yes. The loser. This was, I mean, okay, big move aside, it felt like they were building this guy up to, I guess, take out Big Vito that weekend. Like, we only talk about what we think the booking is. Right. Uh, he was clearly not up to that. It, it's, you know, it's it's kind of a shame that we're wasting uh, this Terry Funk tutelage angle on Johnny the Bull because there maybe are some guys back. Uh, honestly, General Rection would probably be a better guy for this spot if we're going to say someone who could d- deliver a hardcore match halfway competently. Um, I, I, this is a very painful injury. Usually I wouldn't feel good joking about this, but it seems like he now has a pretty good sense of humor about it. It was 18 years ago, but fuck was this a terrible idea. <laughs> I was watching this and, and my instant thought of, of this entire match, not just that spot, but the entire match was, you know, Nick from the, uh, Nick and Dan videos on YouTube. 
And I was just like, oh, no, Johnny, you all over the place, baby. What is you doing, baby? Because uh, the, the, the spots made no sense. And, and that's saying something in the context of a WCW hardcore match, which in and of itself is nonsense. And, and so I think I'll give Johnny some credit. He showed a lot of fire. He's, he's athletic for a big dude. And I, I I loved how he stopped that first time when he was going for the uh, springboard guillotine out of the ring because I thought he actually had a moment of clarity. I thought, you know, he was <laughs> getting ready to head out and he's, he's on the ropes and he's like, you know what? This shit isn't worth it. This this meaningless match that nobody will remember on WCW Nitro is, is not worth uh, the pain and injury. But then when he goes for it again, I was just like, oh, because it just like I didn't know any of the stuff that you had said uh, about the injuries he sustained. But just looking at it as a viewer, it looked painful. And yeah, it it it, it was not worth it. No, it was one of those video game matches, wasn't it? Where you just you plan a load of moves and then um in the end, nobody cheers for the finish. Mm-hmm. And they kind yeah. of had them a little bit um, when it should have been the finish, and then they did three or four extra things because it was planned instead of listening to the crowd. Bit silly. We then get footage from earlier today where Dale Torborg and Asia were rehearsing their new entrance. Halfway through this rehearsal, though, a surprise flame knocks Asia off the stage. We are told that she has been sent to the hospital. Back up to speed and backstage, Del Torborg is shown coming back to the arena to get his bag before going back to the hospital with Asia. Dale is then greeted by the strange, mysterious, and totally non-threatening guy who scolded Vampiro a few weeks ago. This hooded dude gives Torborg his demon clothing, and Dale runs off with it. This hooded dude is shown to be wearing a sting mask, who then takes the sting mask off to reveal it was Vampiro the whole time. But just as this reveal is made, another mysterious dude, an, another mysterious dude shows up behind Vampiro. I cannot wait for this storyline to be over. This is so fucking stupid. They're trying to do a taker fucking, you know, mystical bullshit, but it's just, nah. Did, did Dale Torborg actually think that was Sting? And he said, oh, Sting's brought me my ring gear. Oh, thanks, mate. You are a nice guy. Well, I was going to go to the hospital to go and see my, what is it, girlfriend? Fiance. Fiance. But yeah. no, fuck her. You know, I'm it's gonna, Monday night, baby. Yeah, i got to be at work. I'm, no, I'm, yeah, I'm going to get in my little weird coffin and, uh, and have a match with someone. <laughs> Did he even know that he was having a match with Vampiro? <laughs> Listen, it was on the format sheet even, eventually. I don't understand. I like it, though. I think my favorite part of this segment was the fact that we actually committed TV time to show... Dale Torborg and Asia rehearsing an entrance before the show. <laughs> and who, who would have been filming Why that? Why were they filming that? <laughs> Some of the worst camera work, too. This guy was fucking popping zooms and losing focus all over the like, place. Between that and then we get, you know, the return of the, the hooded man who this time is revealed to be Vampiro. But we can't let that breathe because we've instantly got to put this other hooded being behind him uh it's it's you know we know this isn't russo but it's 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 like a tribute show uh for russo at this point <laughs> just like dale torborg is the kiss it's a covers concert yes. right there you go it all works in somehow the cat walks into goldberg's locker room and tells him that nash has left the building goldberg doesn't believe him and threatens to kick miller's ass if he doesn't get nash tonight all right, all right hold on hold on brian hold on we missed that we missed a crucial segment what's that this might have been my favorite segment of the night where uh, I think it was right after the Dale Torborg and before the cat uh, goes to Goldberg. Yeah. Mike Awesome is walking backstage. 
and he sees a stagehand over by uh, a setup, uh, this desk that is set up, and we'll see this desk come into play later. And, you know, they, they've got like this big computer. It's not even a laptop. It's like a Dell Gateway It's like a desktop PC. they brought to TV. Yeah, they brought a desktop to the, to the arena. And he power bombs this poor stage uh, backstage guy on the table. And this guy is, is, is a far better employee than I could ever be because the table obviously folds in when the guy gets powerbombed through it and the monitor falls on this man's face. <laughs> and I would have broken character because I'm not letting a damn computer monitor fall on my face. That's not for Mike Awesome. Uh, but this guy lets, lets the monitor hit him square in the face and, and is like, I don't I don't know how much he got paid that night, but whatever he was paid, it wasn't enough because uh, he, he truly went above and beyond the call of duty. <laughs> this isn't the, like you know. This isn't these flat screen TVs that you, that you have no. nowadays. These these big solid cubes, and they hurt. I've never been hit in the face with a big television, <laughs> but I can assume it hurts. Well, I'm sorry for missing that. I mean, all these uh, all these Mike Awesome power bombs really start to bleed together after after a while. <laughs> Last week's surprise victors, Jindrak and O'Hara, walk out now, Nate. Uh, we complained last week that these guys showed zero personality, but don't worry, they have a gimmick now. They wrestle in cargo pants. <laughs> so the cargo connection will be facing the misfits in action, with the winner getting a title shot on next week's Nitro. Wrestling for the MIA are General Rection and Lash LaRue. Lash and Jindrak start things off, with Lash getting some offense before tagging in Rection. O'Hare and Jindrak then work over Rection with offense that is somehow both sloppy and overly rehearsed. I don't know how they found the sweet spot between both of these things. <laughs> Rection eventually goes to the top, but Jindrak slams him down with a makeshift electric chair. O'Hare goes up top and hits a splash for a two. Lash runs in and hits the whiplash on Jindrak. Rection follows with the moonsault for the win. Afterwards, the tag champs, uh, Perfect Event, run in and beat up everyone with their Lex Flexors. The Perfect Event celebrates, allowing everyone to come to and beat up the champs, ensuring that nothing was achieved in this segment at all. Major Guns and rips off her top, and all of the guys lay down in hopes that Guns will give them all mouth-to-mouth. These middle-aged men are just that desperate for a kiss from a, from a <laughs> booby woman on television. Um... This was not good. Um, I think I kind of gave Jindrak and O'Hare a pass last week. These guys have been in the power plant for six months doing a couple weeks of Saturday night uh, matches. It feels like they have been taught how to do one match specifically. It is highly choreographed. They rush through it, and they're sloppy at it, and they're way too stiff right now. I mean, I get it. They're, you know, gas to the gills. They got a good look, but uh, I can't justify these guys being on TV just yet. No, I think that if... And this this goes back to Johnny the Bull too, because Johnny the Bull is another guy I think could have done with some more seasoning. Uh, certainly, Jindrak and O'Hare. I'd even go as far as to say Palumbo and Stasiak probably could have used you know six more months uh, of training before we saw them on TV. Like a lot of these guys feel like they've got that look, yeah. And there's some athleticism there, particularly when you talk about a guy like Jindrak. Man, Jindrak has a bunch of athleticism, but they don't know how to be professional wrestlers. Not yet. And so I, I think you got to give credit on the one hand of WCW for trying to have this youth movement, so to speak, but you got to pick the right youth. And, right. and I think the right youth are people like Three Count, people like the Filthy Animals, people like the Young Dragons, not these guys that are green as grass and are going to get themselves or other people hurt. Well, that's the thing that's so interesting is some of this is cost-cutting, but Nate, think back to the promotion we started reviewing at the beginning of this year. 
We had fucking Chono and uh, like Kevin Sullivan <laughs> doing <laughs> matches, and now here's where we're at now. I mean, listen, there's got to be a happy medium between the two, uh, between having fucking uh, Mike Rotunda on your weekly TV show and dudes who've been wrestling for, la- for less than a year. There's too many kids knocking about <laughs> there for me. There's, uh, there was a couple of great moments in that uh, after there was a big schmozola and all the tag teams came out. There was Stasiak and who's his mate that he's... Chuck uh, Palumbo. And Palumbo. And they hit everyone with like sticks or canes or something. Lex, the Lex Flexor. The Lex Flexor. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I haven't been watching. And then, so they, they knocked everyone down. And then they just put the Lex Flexors down and then started posing in front yeah. of each other <laughs> as if like the other guys weren't recovering and they, were, they had no peripheral vision. So then they all just kicked the shit out of them. Mm-hmm. And then Major Guns came in after ripping her top off. Great spot. <laughs> and then Stasiak does he's like nobody will spot this he points to his face did anyone see this Mm-mm. he points to his cheek like this and just goes slap me and then so Major Gun slaps him and then he takes a big <laughs> bump outside I was like right in front of the hard camera I'm like you're on TV for god's yeah. sake just say slap me or just like planet or something but he actually points to his face puts his finger to his cheek <laughs> and points so I couldn't believe it I was so mad the cat goes to Kevin Nash's locker room and tells him that Goldberg has left so he can just take the night off. Nash says that if he doesn't get Goldberg tonight, then Miller will wish he was never born. Elsewhere, Mike Austin powerbombs yet another person through a table. Uh, so, yeah, I guess this is just what they've decided to do with Mike Austin tonight. Scott Steiner isn't available, and this is this is the best second option that we have for him. That's kind of his gimmick, though, isn't it? Awesome to the power bombs people through tables, but it's usually like very, very dangerous. It yeah. seemed like all of the ones that he did, and maybe because there were stagehands, and, and just like, please don't hurt this guy. He's, you know, he's usually very dangerous. No, they were all quite safe power bombs. They were pretty bombs. safe. In yeah, terms I of... mean, it wasn't his fault that there was a huge like 1990s monitor there that hit he the probably other has guy. to remove it. Yeah, he, that's what he would have done. Health and safety mullet over it. <laughs> Back in his office, the cat asks Bischoff to fire Nash and Goldberg for threatening him. Miller then changes his mind and, in classic WCW fashion, decides to give the man who threatened him exactly what they want. This segment also included uh, one of my favorite little nods to an actual sporting event that I don't know the exact timing, but I think this would have been a couple months prior to this, maybe maybe shorter than that. Uh, but he says, Bill Goldberg threatened to eat my children, Eric. Oh, and a bit of Tyson. That, nice. Yeah, that's a reference to the Mike Tyson uh, after he fought Lou Savarese in one of the greatest sports entertainment promos ever. Like, I put it third on my uh, all-time rankings after, uh, you know, Ric Flair. I've, I've spilt, uh, spent more money in bars uh, across this country than, than you've spent in a year, than you make in a year, or Dusty Rhodes' hard time. After that, it's the Mike Tyson eat your children speech to Lennox Lewis where he's like, uh, you know, my, my, my style is impetuous. My defense is impregnable. I'm, I'm ferocious. I'm going to eat your heart. I want to eat your children. And then he takes a pause, looks at the camera and says, praise be to Allah. <laughs> so like that is the greatest, one of the greatest promos in the history of sports entertainment. Well, on the opposite end of the greatest promos in the history of sports entertainment uh, scale. We then go to the arena where world champion Jeff Jarrett makes his way out. While the announcers question if Hogan will be 100% for their match this Sunday. You know what Hogan did bring to the uh, to the interview, though? His baby oil, the sweaty <laughs> Jeff Jarrett, who <laughs> was covered in it. Did you see his like little cut-off? It was like a canary yellow shirt <laughs> he, put the, he put the baby oil on, then put a sleeveless shirt on. And then put a sleeveless shirt on. So he was just sweaty. He just looked like such a gross little homeless man. <laughs> Good old Jarrett. 
Jeff Jarrett starts the promo by saying, who's that man in the ring? A question that I'm sure most of this audience was asking because this is the first time he has held a mic in months on this show. Jarrett calls himself the greatest WCW champion of all time and that he's out here to make a statement. Jarrett says that his grandfather used to tell him stories about how he would pay a nickel to watch Hulk Hogan wrestle. Jarrett promises that he will put Hogan out to pasture because while Hogan might be the best, Jarrett is a god. This then takes a sharp turn when Jarrett calls out the Fat Ladies, three opera singers who came out to Daniel Bryan's theme song. Hubba, hubba, look at these babes! What on earth? These girls are hot! I would be too if I were wearing metal in these TV lights. Clearly zero rehearsal was done because none of these women were actually able to get in the ring with their costumes on. Jeff attempts to hold the rings o- Jeff attempts to hold the ropes open for one of them, but her helmet falls off. The announcers call this production nightmare while one of the other women's while one of the other women gets stuck on the ropes. After about 45 seconds of struggling, all three women get into the ring. Jarrett is suppressing laughter as he starts his promo again. Jeff asks the women who will walk away world champion on Sunday. All three women answer the chosen one. Jarrett then has the ladies sing, na 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 na, hey hey hey, goodbye. One shit gimmick calls for another as we then get the debut of Galen Chandler, WCW's answer to Cyrus the Virus. Jarrett continues making fat jokes until his mic gets cut off. Double J then grabs a guitar, breaking it over Galen's head. The segment continues, though, as the cat comes out and and announces that Goldberg and Kevin Nash will be in the ring tonight along with 18 other men. It will be a battle royal, and if Goldberg and Nash survive to the end, they can do whatever they want to each other, including make Whoopi. A terribly unfunny segment ends with a terribly unfunny line. Nate, I am so fucking happy... This is the last time we're ever seeing Jeff Jarrett as world champion. This fucking plug gets pulled on Sunday and he never gets the belt back. Fuck was this bad. I I don't regret that we haven't seen this guy getting promo time for, for the last couple of months. Uh, what were they ever thinking putting the belt on this guy? Such a fucking waste. I, I do have to give credit where credit is due, Brian, before I get to the negatives. Uh, you know, glass half full here. I have to give some positives. And there was one bright shining light. In this segment, and I don't know this lady's name, so I'm going to call her Fat Lady Number Three. The Fat Lady Number Three was there to earn her money. Was she the girl? She on the was left? the yes. the the yeah, the one to the far yeah, left. Okay, she okay. was like the Kathy Najimian Sister Act character. She was Najimian it up. Like she 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 was going for all that she could get out of this little nothing part on this nothing segment on this relatively nothing show. Like I I give Fat Lady Number Three credit, but there was so much wrong with this. Like the, the fact that Jeff Jarrett was cowering at one point from Galen Chandler and he's the world champion. And this man is chasing Jeff Jarrett around the ring. Why why would I want to pay money to see Jeff Jarrett wrestle? If he's running away from a suit, Uh, that made no sense to me. The, the build to the match Hogan and Jarrett, like it, it, it felt lacking, uh, probably in part because uh, Terry Bollea was not in the building. But this this segment was just a waste of time apart from Fat Lady number three. And I'm not a Jeff Jarrett hater. I think Jeff Jarrett is a perfectly solid, perfectly capable pro wrestler. Uh, but this just wasn't the right spot for him. Uh, do you think it was a shoot, them not being able to get into the ring? Or do you think Fat Lady... Because Fat Lady number three was the first one in. 
um, and she was the one that was really struggling with it. Do you think she was maybe, do you think that was a shoot or do you think she was clever enough to work it a little bit and just say, oh, I'm so fat, I can't get in, even though she wasn't really that fat? I totally believe that was an acting choice. I, I, I give her complete benefit of the doubt because her performance, like the other ladies, they, they, they were fine. They, they, they did what they were there to do. But she was like, this is my moment. I'm going to get a guest spot on Reba off, off of this Nitro. I don't even know if Reba was in production then. But she was going for it. Desperate to get that job. I also noticed that she, when she was the first one to get on the apron and then fat lady number two came in next to her, and then, but she didn't move across the apron, which meant that Fat Lady Number One had to stand on the steps. So she got all of the uh, all of the uh, TV time on the hard camera, whilst yep. poor Fat Lady Number One was screwed. So I think she knew exactly what she was doing, the naughty little chubster. Well, I think we can all agree. Uh, probably should have someone. We just needed the one Fat Lady. Just that one, Fat Lady Number Three. Because the saying isn't "It's all over when the Fat Ladies sing." Yeah. It's fat lady sings. It's one. It's one lady. We just needed one. We didn't need to yeah. guzzy this up as an audition process. If I could give her one more bit of credit, um, they actually had quite good vocals as well. They yep. were clearly fat singers, as well as uh, just fat <laughs> ladies. So this is this has been such a weird uh, build because, um, so this wasn't a this wasn't a match anyone wanted to book. This was a match that Hogan booked for himself with his creative claws. No one wants him to win, but he refuses to lose. We'll get into the craziness that happens on Sunday, but it's it's kind of clear, Nate, that this has been a main event pay-per-view match that no one actually wants to build to. Uh, Jarrett's not cutting promos on, on Hogan. They're not doing their best. I mean, they could have been doing weeks of, like, Jarrett calling Hogan old and talking about how, like, he's, you know, they finally put him out to pasture and all this stuff. And really make, milk the question, will will Hogan even be there that this weekend? That's 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 not what they're doing. This just I mean, the last two weeks, he's just been facing Scott Steiner. Yeah. And not only is this a match that I, I, I think the company didn't want to book, but it's a match that the fans, I don't think, had interest in. And even if they had put effort behind promoting this match, I don't think there still would have been that much interest in Hulk Hogan versus Jeff Jarrett for the world title in the year 2000. Uh, so I think. Again, like Jeff Jarrett's not great, but I think that this feud kind of handcuffed him because if we were leading to a feud with Scott Steiner over the title or a feud with Booker T over the title or a feud with Sting or DDP or somebody that was there to play, I think Jeff Jarrett would have come across better in this role, even if you know he wasn't the perfect choice for champion. But I think having him work with Hogan, it it diminished whatever credibility Jeff had uh, in this room. Yeah, and since this is kind of the Hogan portion of, of the show, as close as we're going to get, and, and you know, uh, Chris is, you know, our, our Hogan guy. You know, he was here for his last episode, and here he is for, uh, you know, he's here. For, you're here for Hogan's first 2000 Nitro. You're going to be here for, this is kind of his last one, uh, for sure. This is certainly the last time they show his face, I think, uh, on the show. Such a coincidence that I was available as well. It's such a coincidence. You're usually a very busy man. Right. Um, I think it's I think it's fair to say, you know, just, just looking back, this was definitely the worst period of the guy's career. I think you can say maybe TNA could get a little worse. But, I was going to say TNA, yeah. Well, I think this is just so bad because he, he's getting so much easy money. And he thinks it's going to last forever. Two years later, when he shows up at WWE, he actually does put in some effort. You and I, we've watched the, the Rock Hogan match. Mm. Guy does fucking nine bumps, I yep. think. 
He puts over... Uh, we both <laughs> lost, by the way. <laughs> we both <laughs> lost. He ends up uh, putting over, you know, Brock. He puts over uh, Angle. He puts over, he puts over people when he comes over. Um, and he has some pretty good matches. By that point, he actually kind of needed the money and understood there's nowhere else for him to go to get that. So he was willing to play ball a little bit. But this this year, this past six, this has been the worst of the guy's career that I've that I've ever seen. That's interesting um, because I mean the TNA thing is obvious, uh, right? But I guess he seemed motivated because he had a different position, you know, because he had more of a creative position. He was writing a little bit more, and he was with Bischoff, and he seemed he seemed motivated. Whether you know the decisions that he did or the you know the quality of his of the product is you know speaks for itself. Um, but I think you know the more I think about it, thing you might you might be right. The last six months have been just pretty dire for him. Yeah. I think he was just tired and just wanted mm-hmm. to go home. But, you know, there was no other option. I'd agree because I think even though the TNA run wasn't spectacular by any stretch, it at least had some good moments. And I think, you know, maybe the best one among them was that they were able to have a match at Bound for Glory. I forget the year. But the, the match where Hogan finally uh, decided to help Sting out. And turned turned his back on on Bischoff and Immortal, like that was a good moment. That was good storytelling. Whereas with this run with Hogan, whether we're talking about the fu New Blood gear or I'm Hulk Hogan, no, I'm Terry Bollea, no, I'm Hollywood, the the schizophrenic nature of not only the character but the story that the characters placed in, it it feels more selfish. Like like it it feels less giving. Uh, and so yeah, I, I would say. Even though the TNA run was not great and it ended literally with the owner of the company on her knees begging Hulk Hogan to not to leave, it's still better than what he was doing in WCW in the year 2000. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I think for me, the verdict, I, I would say the TNA run was worse because I think that WCW, from bringing Hogan in, clearly he did bring some benefit to this company at one point. Um, and I don't think that it was all of his... I think his shenanigans and a lot of the politicking he introduced certainly didn't help the company, but I don't think that he ruined it. Whereas I think when you look at TNA, I don't think he ever brought any benefit to that company. Um, And ultimately, a lot of the bullshit that he pulled there and the people who he got jobs did kind of kill that company and put put it where it is now. The nasty boys. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) Uh, we, I, you know what, Brian? I, I know uh, John and Way have already reviewed it, but one, that, that might have to be something something special we do one of these days. Go back and look at that that first Nitro. Uh, that f- Nitro, damn. That first, uh, well, it was kind of like a first Nitro. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was. That first episode of Impact where they tried to go head-to-head with the WWE because it's, it's, it's a lot. Nate, don't. Don't make me don't make me edit that out because pretty soon people are going to be expecting us to do 2010 a, a TNA Odyssey or some shit. You should do a one off. That would be a long episode though because there was a it was a three hour episode, on, wasn't there? Jeez. Was that the was that the one where Orlando Jordan came out with the with the streamers and all that, or was that the next? Orlando week? Jordan's there. Valvinus like is there. Himself. Did he have like baby oils? I think or there's something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Suggestive. <laughs> Backstage, please, please, sorry, please do that. <laughs> Backstage, another awesome victim gets ambulanced away from the arena. Elsewhere, Jeff Jarrett and the cat argue for some reason. I honestly have no fucking idea how these two could possibly be angry at each other. My favorite line in the argument: There's a point where a cat takes off his sunglasses, like you can't talk to me like that, man. And then Jeff Jarrett pulls off his sunglasses, and his comeback is, "Oh, we're taking off glasses now. I can take my glasses off too." 
Like, you know what? I'm as much as I didn't like that last segment, I, I can't hate you, Jeff Jarrett. I can't I can't quit you. Up next is the franchise Shane Douglas versus Booker T featuring Booker T accompanied by the original Harlem Heat's theme song. Nate, months of shit booking we finally got back to here. Uh I'm just I don't care about the logic. I'm just happy that we're back to this point. Clearly nothing was achieved by the lawsuit and losing T and being in MIA. We've wasted the last five months of this dude's career, but hey, we're back to where we should be, Nate. Wait, sorry. This was going on on the first episode that I did. Yes. Is this still (laughs) happening? This is the first time he has the music back. You poor bastards. Yeah, you you missed the entire run of of G.I. Bro and Booker with the Misfits in action. And yeah, it hadn't been great. Uh, there's, sorry, there's another member of this match as well, which is Conan O'Brien referee. Can you spot him with his toxic red the fucking hair? Fucking red, uh, red shock up top. Yeah, I've never seen him before. I like him. Looking like LaRue. Yeah. Um, Chris Canyon jumps Booker before he gets in the ring and roughs him up before throwing him back to Douglas. Franchise hits a gourd buster and his rolling neck snap. Shane Douglas sends Booker to the floor and Booker lays out Canyon. However, this distraction allows Douglas to attack Booker. Back in the ring, Booker gets whipped into the corner and does a float over roll up for a two count. Booker reverses a whip into a knee lift. He follows this up with an axe kick, spinneroonie, and Harlem sidekick. Canyon jumps up on the apron and Booker goes to hit him. France franchise runs at Booker, but Booker ducks. Booker then gets the bookend for the win. After the bell, Canyon runs in and double teams Booker with Shane. Canyon then celebrates with DDP's music. Uh, at the time in 2000, I was a kid. Uh, I kind of viewed Booker T based on where he was in the card and how he was being pushed. I was totally surprised and confused when he would win the world title that Sunday in a hot shot match. But fuck, watching back almost 20 years later, it is so obvious that this he's the best guy in the company and no one's working as hard as he is. He's a crazy athlete at this point, isn't yeah. he? Oh my goodness, the guy just doesn't move like a normal, you know, someone of his size should move. Um, having said that, he did fuck up the bookend at the end. Did you see that? <laughs> he kind of botched it a little bit. I don't think Franchise got the timing right. Um, <laughs> you know, well, that's part of the course. Yeah, this this might have been the best Shane Douglas match we've seen during this 2000 run. And I would give a, a large part of that credit to him having to keep up with Booker's athleticism and, and just the pace of the match. And, yeah, I think this was probably the second best match on the show, in my opinion. Like, I, I loved everything from the, the hearing the old music back to, you know, just seeing somebody motivated and not phoning it in and also somebody that is young but also knows what they're doing in the wrestling ring as opposed to Johnny the Bull or as opposed to uh, Palumbo and Stasiak or Jindrak and O'Hare. He's, Booker's young but he's not dumb and he's not uh, ineffective with, with his in-ring work and so yeah, I at the time when they put the belt on Booker I was surprised I was shocked uh to a certain extent but it wasn't it wasn't a situation where i didn't think he didn't deserve it it just felt like wow like he's he's ahead of where the company is and i thought that the company finally caught up to you know the work that he'd been putting in yeah and i don't know if the decision had been made yet by this point um uh, clearly it was not a day of decision this was something that was made a little further advanced but i don't know if the decision had been made as of this episode um, we'll get into it when his actual title reign starts, but 
I don't know mm. if putting the title on him out of nowhere that weekend was the right idea. I feel like he really could have benefited for at least an actual month bill to his first title shot. Like he wins a surprise number one contenders thing on Nitro and then you know, like that. And he's like, you do a month of him being the underdog. I just remember at the time I was totally blown back because even though right now I can look and seeing into the future, I can see how much raw potential this guy has. There's nothing about this guy that says world champion at this point. Well, essentially, it's what the WWE did recently when they put the belt on Jinder Mahal. Like, it's this guy that you accept as a fan at one level, and you put him in a level that is above where he's at currently. But unlike Jinder, I think Booker grew into the role, whereas I think with Jinder, it was always a bit of a rough fit. In the back, Dale Torborg sits on the steel throne in full demon garb. Shivani marks out that the demon is back. The cat goes into the heel locker room and asks the and asks the wrestlers to enter his battle royal to keep Nash and Goldberg apart. Miller promises all of them bonuses, and the heels agree. We then get a recap of all the demon, vampiro, sting, whatever shit goodness from the last couple of weeks. This sets up our next match, Vampiro versus the Demon. Yes, there is a pay-per-view this Sunday, but why waste this box office attraction on that? <laughs> the crowd gets behind Babyface Demon by chanting, We want Sting. Vamp gets a roundhouse kick, goes up top, but misses a top left, uh, but misses a top rope leg drop. Demon then fires back, and the crowd pops huge. No, not for the demon. Instead, for a group of men in sting masks walking out, uh, walking down the aisle. Vamp hits a flying clothesline, but then gets distracted by the masked men surrounding the ring. The demon takes advantage and hits the love gun for the pin. After the match, the not stings surround Vamp like a scene from Eyes Wide Shut. The lights go out, and when they come back on, Vampiro has disappeared. This fucking sucked. Every second of this, there was not a single decent moment of this entire segment. It was fucking terrible. I guess you're going to say it all then, aren't you? <laughs> There's nothing more for me to add. <laughs> uh, there was one point where I had a glimmer of hope, where I had the 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 stirrings inside my heart that this could be an epic segment. When we had all the stings in the ring, I thought we were going to get the bit where Vampiro takes like nine of them out. And then he turns around to beat up the 10th one, and he takes off the sting mask, and there's actually sting under the sting mask. I thought we were going to get that old chestnut, but no, we just got more of this ridiculous, great value version of The Undertaker uh, that we've gotten from Vampiro thus far. I was thinking more like Ultimate Warrior in 1998. You remember when he, there was always the smoke in the ring, and then he just disappeared <laughs> yes. and stuff, you know, the thing that, <laughs> the thing that killed Davy Boy's career with the trapdoor when he uh, busted his back. Um, one thing that I did quite like was uh, the demon's entrance. It reminded me a bit of Alistair Black, you know, mm -hmm. when he came sort of like, oh, that's a, uh, sorry, Alistair, I didn't mean that, <laughs> but <laughs> you know what I mean. Um, I actually really like Vampiro, but it's not based on today, um, and that's about it. I was like you, you know, I was expecting him to beat up, like sort of Jackie Chan style, beat up the nine guys, like you were saying, and then there would be, at least I, I was expecting to see Sting somewhere. Uh, maybe in the rafters or something. He doesn't have to do anything, but, you know, he's done a Hogan, decided to stay at home. Don't blame him. It's just so funny because if you look over at the other show, uh, so Biker Taker would have debuted about a month and a half before this. So WWE is even saying, we're not doing that bullshit anymore. Mm. <laughs> but here's WCW still trying to do it and not executing it very well. Backstage, Am I Smooth is shown scheming with the filthy animals. Hold on a second. 
Is this Ice Train? This is Ice Train. Oh my god. Yes. Okay, because I haven't seen him since 1993. He is great. We didn't get enough of him on this show, but M.I. Smooth is a great character. Why is he back? He is now Ernest Miller's uh, limo driver. <laughs> oh <my> <laughs> All right, okay, let's move on. <laughs> Well, this is a this was a great era. That this was really pre-internet, pre-social media. Dudes could come back as different characters. You can't do that anymore. Bray Wyatt still gets those those stupid Husky oh, Harris chants. Yeah. The cat goes into the babyface locker room and tells them to keep Nash and Goldberg apart during the battle royal. Booker T tells Cat to get the hell out. To prove that this was a pre-tape, Johnny the Bull was shown here, presumably with his dick still intact. <laughs> Elsewhere, David Flair tries to talk Daphne out of her match with Hancock at the pay-per-view. Once again, these two women are fighting over him rather than both of them just dumping David Flair. On the monitor, though, Miss Hancock is shown walking into the arena in a wedding dress, and David keeps getting distracted by the video. He tries to calm Daphne by singing My Heart Will Go On from Titanic, but has no idea how the tune actually goes. Near she believes it. She believes it's Wherever twice. you are. That song, I love singing that to you. He needed to get one of the fat ladies from earlier on to maybe <laughs> sing that for him. Oh, that would have been great if, if, if the, the fat lady number three had just come in from the side and done her <laughs> best Celine Dion impression. I mean, it's live, there's nothing stopping her. But again, this is pre internet era. You can't just pull up a song. I'm sure it was all these wrestlers who don't remember how the fuck the song goes trying to remember what the tune actually was. <laughs> well, sing a and song this was that the closest know. they could get. <laughs> In the ring, Hancock asks if the fans like what they see. Tony agrees. Hancock offers to get naked, but Crowbar runs in, but Crowbar runs into the ring with a chair. In the back, we see David fake a stomach ache and send Daphne away uh, when he sees Crowbar on the monitor. Crowbar then threatens to cut Hancock's hair, much to Madden's delight. Don't move, I'll shave you right now, baby. Oh no. Shave her! Shave her! Crowbar gives David a 10 count to get in the ring. David is somehow there within two seconds. Daphne then charges the ring with a bottle of Pepto-Bismol. Daphne low blows David, somehow fucks it up, and instead of low blowing him, she just like grabs his dick and pulls on it for a second. She then dumps the medicine on him. Hancock attacks Daphne from behind and does what is supposed to be a choke, but really just turns into her massaging Daphne's temples. Crowbar pulls Hancock off Daphne, who gets on her knees to beg for mercy. Don't worry, the blowjob imagery wasn't missed by anybody. David then hits Crowbar with an unprotected chair shot. David and Hancock then shave some of Daphne's hair. David puts the clippers in Crowbar's hand and leaves. Daphne is then stupid enough to think that Crowbar is the one who shaved her head. I said some terrible things about the demon segment. This one was even worse. There has not been a single redeeming element to this entire Daphne Hancock feud at all. Oh my god, I, I need to compose myself a little bit, but my favorite <laughs> bit was right at the end when uh, Shavonto was just like, it's all right, we've got, uh, we've got cameras here. She can just watch it back. And that was the end of the segment. <laughs> so there's like David Flair with Pepto-Bismol pink juice on his face and just, <laughs> just running around in his hair and shaving. It was like they, were, they had a shaver to cut Daphne's hair. And like chunks were coming out, but her hair is so long and thick that it just looked exactly the same. Yeah. That was my biggest thing. Like they, they did the shaving angle for a good 20, maybe 30 seconds. And you're getting all these hunks of yeah. hair flying back and forth. But when she stood up, you know, to the the untrained eye, there's not a big difference from the Daphne. No, with she has a lot of hair. Yeah. 
I think she might even have some extensions, and they're like yeah. shaving from the very, very back. Yeah, yeah. So, like, in, in matter of fact, they gave her a, a trendier haircut. One could argue. Um, <laughs> they just thinned it out for her as well, yeah. which she needed, to be fair. But I will give them credit for one thing. You know, we've talked about the production, and, and I've hated on the production this week. But I will give them credit. I thought they did a, a good job of using the monitor in the back to advance this particular segment with David. You yeah. know, he's got one eye on Daphne and one eye on Miss Hancock in the monitor. And then when he sees Crowbar, that's when he has to come out to the ring it felt more natural than some other uses of production elements on this show also this whole storyline should just go to show you david versus rick flair was never father versus son it was just russo embarrassing this fucking legend what was this always the follow-up to this like this guy just completely pulled like ruined his family, pulled his family apart, humiliated his father on TV two weeks ago, and this is the follow-up that we have for him? He's in the corner for like a brawn panties match? That's ridiculous. Hey, his 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 heart will go on, Brian. <laughs> During the break, Crowbar followed Daphne backstage only to be powerbombed through a table by Awesome. Awesome then throws Crowbar into an ambulance. Not, no, not 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 now, not through a table. Through the exact same damn table as before with the monitor reset. Like why why would you reset after Mike Awesome has destroyed your workstation? Just just move to a different location. It's just I just imagine this poor guy just been like he's just trying to set up his table all like for the last two or three hours. And there's just some asshole coming around and just destroy it. It's like for God's sake, will you leave my table alone? He's just gonna set up on the floor next week, I reckon. <laughs> M.I. Smooth brings Tigress into the cat's office. Tigress begins flirting with Miller and asks him to come to her dressing room. Miller says he has two minutes to spare and asks if he can keep his shoes on. Ridiculous. So they just. So he's, he's, get, he's basically saying, suck my dick, I've got two minutes. She's saying it. She's saying. And he's saying, this is your time limit. Right, go. Keep in mind, I have no idea why. They had to distract Ernest Miller from the next match. I don't know what happened with the Young Dragons. We never saw them ever again. Didn't they go to commercial? <laughs> um, in the arena, Disco and Conan come out. Disco then announces a very special interview with Lance Storm and Billy Kidman. However, out comes Juventud Guerrera <laughs> and Rey Mysterio, dressed as Lance Storm and Billy Kidman. Conan makes a Richard Gere gerbil joke before Hoobie does some weak Kidman impression. This goes nowhere before the real Storm and Kidman hit the ring. We then get Hoobie and Ray versus Lance and Kidman, which was about as confusing as you would expect for a match between two teams dressed exactly alike. Storm Sorry, could I just say, yeah. they weren't dressed exactly alike, and this is what really, really annoyed me. Kidman wasn't even dressed like Kidman. Hooventude looked more like Kidman than Kidman did. <laughs> Kidman, didn't, Kidman have the, didn't have the wife beater on. didn't have the wife beater on. Oh, I was furious. I was like, put a fucking shirt on. Maybe they just had one shirt and, they, <laughs> and he gave it to, uh, uh, to Hoovy. Storm picks up Ray for a Kidman dropkick. Then Storm assists Kidman with a moonsault. The confusion is only made worse by Madden pretending that he can't tell the teams apart. Hoovy hits a reverse powerbomb, whips Kidman into the corner, and Storm tags himself in. Storm comes in, hits a nice standing sidekick madden says this is why football teams wear different jerseys so the announcers can tell them apart tony then buries him saying that decent announcers can tell them apart kidman attempts a body scissors but hoovy grabs him allowing ray to hit a top rope uh leg drop on kidman as hoovy holds him 
This only gets a two though, as Storm makes the save. Ray tries for a head scissors, but Storm reverses it into a power bomb. Disco tosses a chair into the ring and Conan distracts the ref. With Kidman on the top turnbuckle, Ray goes up top, face jams him onto the chair. The ref totally saw the move, but he has to play dumb and pretend he didn't. Ray then gets the cover for the win. After the match, the animals beat down on Storm and Kidman. Um, by the standards of the time, this was probably the best tag match we've seen this entire experiment. Now, of course, Storm and Kidman are such a great tag team. This is the last time we will see them together. Yeah, I, I, I like this segment. I, I thought that the opening part with Ray and Hoovy dressed as Lance and Kidman, particularly like Ray with the spiked hair and then the just the serious uh, demeanor, I, I enjoyed that quite a bit. Um, the the in-ring I, w I would agree. I'd, th I'd say not only was this the best match on the show, but it was the best tag match we've seen this entire run, uh, you know, because you've got four guys that are all capable in there. And so, yeah, the, the pace was just different than pretty much anything else on the show. Uh, good match. Uh, I could have done without some of the Tom Fuller around it, you know, the, the cat stuff. That, that preceded it uh, and and will follow it. Uh, I, I didn't really need on my wrestling program. Uh, but all in all, in judging by our, our litmus test for what makes for passable segments on this program, this one gets a thumbs up. I agree with that. And uh, a shout out to Lance Storm's jocks, which uh, I think he looks good. <laughs> and I think Ray looks good in those um, tights as well, but better than his big baggy pants. He actually does. Like I, I would have loved to see a, a an offshoot from this. Granted, we're gonna get to Team Canada, which is amazing uh, down the road. But I would have loved to see Ray and Lance be forced to team, and and Ray have to wear Lance's uh, get up. Because uh, I think they would have been a pretty good good little team. Well, that's that's the interesting thing, and why I'm so happy Lance Storm is on this show is because. He's a younger guy. He's clearly like there's no no one's doubting his talents in the ring, but he's also extremely motivated at this point still. Guys like, you know, Ray Kidman, they're really talented, but you can tell they're not as motivated as as they once were. Ray, who is one of the best, you know, probably going to go down as the best high flyer of the last 20 years or so, he's just fucking out here just goofing around with his buddies, you know, dressing up, making jokes. But to have Landstorm come in here who actually can do these moves, is motivated, is thinking of creative spots. I mean, him and Kidman have more chemistry as a tag team than uh, fucking uh, Perfect Event or yeah. any of these other, you know, sort of like milk toast teams populating this roster. I really like these two. Now, I'm not going to claim too much that they're not a tag team because I think both these guys have a lot to offer in singles. But, you know, what are we? Three weeks in? I'm, I'm very happy to have Lance Storm in this company, Nate. It's... It's funny because just like uh, we saw in the Booker-Shane match, when Shane was in there, Shane Douglas actually seemed more motivated or at least uh, motivated in 2,000 terms. <laughs> but I, I think, yeah, when you have somebody that's in there that is busting their ass, somebody that's not there just to phone it in and, and cash a check, you're either going to do one of two things. You're either going to shrink to that or you're going to try to rise to the occasion and I thought all four guys in this match you know while there were some sloppy bits here and there uh just as a match it was probably one of the most enjoyable things on the show the cat is shown arriving back in his office tucking his shirt in confirming that he did in fact fuck tigress the announcers then give him shit for missing the last segment um 
what was the possible reason to justify this? The only thing I can think is that there was outside interference and Cat has his no outside interference rule, but there was outside interference in the Booker T match earlier. So uh, I, what, why was this, why was this here? So Tigress could get practice on her accents because that was, (laughs) that's what stood out to me during that, during that Tigress Ernest Miller segment. Like I, I have not heard a lot of Tigress interviews, uh, but I don't think her accent is, is it felt like she was trying to put on uh, uh, an accent that, that didn't fit. Uh, and so, yeah, I was trying to pin down, like, what's what's the accent from Tigress? And so, yeah, maybe that's what uh, that segment was designed to do is give her time to practice her craft. And, and so, yeah, it, it, it's all connected, Brian. Pamela interviews Vampiro, who has magically reappeared in the Nitro interview area. Vamp says he's the master of mind games, and he challenges the demon to a graveyard match at the pay-per-view. Again, Nate, I'm so glad we skipped these pay-per-views. Also, this has got to be violating one of these central rules, and it shouldn't, you shouldn't even have to think about it that much. If a dude mysteriously disappears, he does not reappear in the show, and he especially does not reappear in the interview area. (laughs) And if he does, that interviewer's first question should be, hey, so you can fucking disappear. What's that all about? <laughs> what's, a, what's a graveyard match? Uh, or shall I just not bother asking? Well, funny enough, this is the second one they've had this year. Oh, of course. Is it a bad <laughs> sting? No, it's where you fight in a graveyard and the first guy who makes it back to the arena wins. Let's move on. <laughs> well, you say move on. We can't move very far because we come back from break and we're back with Pamela again. We went nowhere. She's now talking to Kevin Nash. Big Sexy says he'll be the big pissed off one in the Battle Royal and that Goldberg knows where to find him. We then get Thunder footage of Scott Steiner putting Mike Awesome in the Steiner recliner. Tony Giovanni explains that that is why Scott Steiner has been su- has been suspended this week. Sure, whatever. This leads to a montage of Awesome's various power bombs throughout the night. In the arena, Awesome comes out for a promo and gets distracted by a sign calling him Mullet. The crowd then chants Mullet. Awesome says that he wants Scott Steiner tonight and tells the timekeeper to ring the bell. And Awesome says that he is now 1-0 against Scott Steiner. Just then, Rick Steiner hits the ring, and Awesome runs away. Rick tells Awesome the next time he calls out a Steiner, he should, have, he should make sure neither of them are in the building. Another segment that was really fucking stupid. Uh, either have Awesome beat up Scott's brother or do the innocent victim gimmick. This just made Awesome look like a joke. Even though, I mean, all the random power bombings were kind of a joke, you could kind of buy into, like, listen, this makes him seem tough. But then to have him run away with his tail between the legs against Rick Steiner, I would have much rather preferred this just been like a cat and mouse game throughout the show, and then it ends with him destroying Rick Steiner. Why are we, who, what, for what reason are we protecting Rick Steiner? He also hasn't got a mullet. You're right. He does not have a mullet. He just has long hair. Why doesn't he have a mullet? If that's his gimmick, why not just shave like this? You know, give him a, like a not a bald head, but you know, sort of like a, a number two or something on the sides. He used to have a mullet, and now he doesn't have a mullet. And I, you know, that gets more heat with me than anything. But why they're protecting Rick Steiner? I don't know. I mean, maybe they're just trying to say that Mike Awesome's just scared of the Steiners in general, yeah. so he's just trying to run away. And he's like, you know what? I'm not bothered about Rick. I'm bothered about Scott. I'm seeing him on Sunday, so yeah. I'll keep, just keep fresh. Yeah, I I don't know what it is with Rick Steiner this time. Like, I used to be a huge Rick Steiner fan, like, back in the late 80s, early 90s. I, I, love, me, I love me some Rick Steiner, but by this point, 
Like, you're not, you're not fooling me with Rick Steiner. Like, I'm, I'm sure he's a legitimate tough dude, but in the context of this professional wrestling show, Rick Steiner should be like Glass Joe on Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. Like, he should be one of the easier dudes in the company to beat. And for Mike Awesome to, uh, you know, have to run away from Rick Steiner, it does undercut a bit all of the carnage that we saw Isom. Isom. Uh, maybe that that's, oh, a tag team with Ice Train and Mike Awesome. The ice oh. <laughs> uh, but it, it undercut a lot of the damage that Mike Awesome did uh, throughout the course of the show because they they committed so much time to it. That's the thing, Brian. Like we got at least four different segments of Awesome either powerbombing people or watching the ambulances uh, pull off. So like this whole show was kind of built. Other than Nash and Goldberg, it was built around Mike Awesome. So for this to kind of be the conclusion of it, it, it fell flat. Backstage, the cat sends out the heel participants in the Battle Royal. In the arena, Nash's video plays for about 20 seconds before the music actually kicks in, and Nash enters. In the back, Cat tells the baby faces to sit back and wait for his orders. Ray Jr. and Hoovy run into the ring first. Nash eliminates both of them in about 20 seconds. Conan then runs in and gets clotheslined out instantly. On commentary, the announcers notice that this is not a battle royal, but rather a plan for Miller to weaken Nash for Goldberg. Disco runs down and locks in a sleeper hold. Perfect Event then enters to beat down Nash. Nash fights back and gives Palumbo a choke slam. Big Vito then comes in with a kendo stick, but Nash gets in and attacks everyone with it. Politively Canyon enters next. In the back, the cat is preventing the baby faces from entering the ring. Booker T then shoves the cat to the side, and the faces charge the ring. There's a big brawl, and then Goldberg's music hits, and out he comes. During Goldberg's walk to the ring, somehow 10 guys were eliminated during his entrance. He comes down much thinner roster. Once Nash eliminates everyone, Goldberg walks in the ring and delivers a sidekick. The misfits in action then hold Goldberg's leg, distracting him. This allows Nash to attempt a big boot, but he doesn't quite get all of it. Goldberg no-sells it, then realizes this is the finish, and decides to fall to the floor anyway, making Nash the winner of a 20-man battle royal in less than four minutes. So wait, so it was a battle royal or it wasn't a battle royal? It was. I guess it was an over-the-top elimination thing. Okay, so first thing... First gripe that I've got because I went back and rewatched the end of this. Yeah, Goldberg went through the ropes. He didn't go over the top. I think it was got to get to the floor. Is maybe maybe it wasn't over the top. What is it like a you know like the 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 divas uh, <laughs> like about ten years ago <laughs> when 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 they didn't trust the girls to go over the top rope, so they're just like, oh, it's all right. You can just slip un- underneath and then just. Leave. <laughs> So Nash and Goldberg then brawl, but security breaks them up. Much like the previous segment, the pull-apart looked really great, but everything else fucking sucked. Um, Yeah, I mean, I feel like you could have just all show long been building to a Goldberg-Nash confrontation. Like, don't want to do the the entire WWE thing of a contract signing, but this just sucked. This was a bad way of doing it. It was ineffective. We were confused by it. You were throwing meaningless rules into what just needed to be a pull-apart. Plus, you're also adding things like, you know, yeah, we're going to do a pull-apart, but we're also going to do it in such a way that we make guys like Hoovy and Ray and Conan look like jokes. And all of our everyone's going to lose a match to make these two look good. A simple pull-apart involving the entire roster would have been much, much more effective. You know who looks strongest in that pull-apart out of all of them that you said? Disco Inferno. (laughs) Because he was the one that Nash was... Everyone was just cascading out, like you said. You said Ray and Conan, and who was the other one? 
Uh, Conan, Hoovy, uh, uh, um, Hoovy, yeah. Okay, it was uh, Disco who was the fourth guy in, and he was the only one that didn't get thrown out. He gets he locks in a super a sleeper hole. He locks in a sleeper, <laughs> and then he, I'm just like waiting for him to get binned out, but he's still in there, he's still in there, and then more guys come in and start, and then they the, the heels get on the uh, on the offense. The only guys that look strong in this were Disco and Kevin Nash. I <laughs> mean <laughs> Goldberg. Goldberg like a fucking idiot. <laughs> right. So yeah, Goldberg Nash. Uh, sorry. Uh, Nash and Disco, uh, I'm assuming, are the main event. At the next pay per view. At the yeah. next pay per view. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, this 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 was no good, and I feel like uh, this is the weird thing that WCW will do sometimes. It isn't necessarily incompetence; it's that they overcomplicate very basic things. Mm. I don't think I've ever told you this, Brian, uh, throughout all of our uh, trials and tribulations on on these uh, podcast streets, but. I've never really been a big fan of the Battle Royal match. Like, the, there's some Royal Rumbles that have been really good. There's some old NWA Battle Royals that I've enjoyed. But to me, the the biggest draw of a Battle Royal is the storytelling. And for that to occur, you got to give it more than four or five minutes. So this was a, a match that I wasn't enthused about when Cat announced it earlier in the show. And then when we got the execution of that match... It it fell flat, and yeah, Goldberg looked like looked like a maroon, uh, to use an old Bugs Bunny turn of phrase, because like you're supposed to be the 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 baddest guy on this program. You're supposed to be this big obstacle for Kevin Nash, and you get eliminated so easily. Uh, it, it 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 didn't make Goldberg look good. Uh, like really, the the other than Disco and, and Nash, the only other person that I thought had any sort of agency or any sort of power in this segment was Booker T when he told the cat, you know, get the hell out of the way. And he led the baby faces to the ring. Other than that, everybody else looked stupid. Yeah, but then he had zero showing in that match. <laughs> there was even maybe even a way to do this where like Booker T won the battle royal in, in, in a way. You know, like there was a way yeah. to maybe even get there if you Nash wanted and Goldberg to. Goldberg can eliminate themselves, right? And, and brawl and, and brawl to the back if you want to. But clearly, I mean, that was the main thing. That's what we're ending on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just 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 dumb, just like nothing, not just just really bad. And even though they booked the Goldberg heel character well last week, this way they just they booked him as just a weaker version of his babyface self. Because like, and the uh, I think the only mention you talk about that that what we did last what he did last week, the only mentions of hacksaw were I think we got a video and I think Booker said something about it. Other than that, like this big angle from the week before was pretty much forgotten. Yeah, and, was and, this a big angle? This hacksaw because I was furious when I saw hacksaw in the opening yeah. segment. I was like, I saw two guys in this uh, like you know they do the opening like yeah. a recap. There was Hacksaw, Jim Duggan, and Horace Hogan. Yeah. And I was like, oh, God. And I almost, <laughs> I was like, this is why I switched it off the last time. So what was this whole deal with Hacksaw then? Was, it just that Hacksaw came back uh, for one night only and was oh, like, okay. I gotta, um, I'm, I'm standing up for what's right. And then they told the story about how he had kidney cancer and all this stuff. And then it was just Goldberg. So he was just fodder for Goldberg. Beat the shit out of him That's and like fine. attacking his kidney afterwards until he was coughing up blood. Okay, perfect. Yeah, it was a really good heel yeah. angle. But yeah, a week later for us to not really fall up on it, right. past just the, you know, Goldberg's like kind of a, 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 a weaker version of what he usually is. Mm. 
Um, and he's got to pick on these old guys who are right. sick. And he's got to pick on... Uh, or, or he's, this week, the follow-up was yelling at the production crew, which just doesn't have quite the emotional no, resonance. It doesn't, it doesn't. <laughs> so it sounds like uh, kind of, you know, across the board, everyone here kind of down on this episode. Uh, if I'm reading the room right, I, I don't think anyone here is necessarily uh, uh, enthusiastic about what we just uh, discussed. <laughs> Who's going to talk first? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. As I said, it took me it took me three goes um, to watch it. Um, I, I enjoyed the recap. Uh, like I'm enjoying this mm-hmm. more than I'm in, I actually enjoyed watching the show this morning. Um, some of it was... Are we doing like a pick what you liked and what you didn't like on the show? Well, I think right now we're just giving our general thoughts. General thoughts? Okay. About the show. We'll do our silver lining. In a I second. did find some of it really funny, but it was for the wrong reasons. Um, like the just the little things like I enjoyed little Conan O'Brien ref and, <laughs> uh, I, um, <laughs> that's about it really <laughs> and some of the things like the, the blowjob thing and I enjoyed seeing Ice Train yep so there you go blowjob Ice Train Conan O'Brien <laughs> uh, yeah this this was not this is not a great episode it wasn't boring because there were plenty of things to talk about uh but it wasn't a a good episode of professional wrestling on my television screen uh i think for me the things that i enjoyed though were you know seeing booker t and shane douglas uh seeing the filthy animals and lance storm and kidman have their match uh but if, if, we're, if we're gonna go that silver lining route brian i have to give my silver lining to the underrated comedic team of Ernest the Cat Miller and M.I. Smooth. Like, I need more of them on my TV. Like, middle management, Ernest Miller, and then you've kind of got, I don't know if, if uh, you remember uh, Fonsworth Bentley. Who's that? Used to be, like, Diddy's manservant, oh, the yeah. guy with the umbrella. That's who M.I. Smooth kind of reminds me of. Like, he's the limo driver, but he's also, like, the the – assistant for the cat like he's like a swole Fonsworth Bentley and I, I like the the interplay between the two and I think especially if you're not going to have Bischoff and Russo, Russo on the show I could have used more of them in a, in a comedic role well this episode was the last time that uh Bischoff will be referenced even though it was just on the phone until the second to last Nitro ever where he is uh heard on the phone one last time uh, Russo, I believe, is back the next week. I could be mistaken, but I think he is. He's he's definitely on the pay-per-view uh, this coming weekend. For me, I would say my silver lining, um, I gotta, gotta, probably got to say uh, Lance Storm. Like, I'm just happy to see this guy. Um, I, I mean, I would kind of give an underhanded silver lining t- to the fact that this is the last Jeff Jarrett world champion episode. But, you know, I'm going to give it, I think it's two two or three weeks in a row running. Lance Storm, there you go. Uh, got to give him the silver lining. If there's one negative that I would add, the one thing that I wasn't expecting um, was just the lack of star power that was on the show. Yeah, was, I it's really changed a lot from when you were here last. It really has. I mean, there's no, I mean, there was no Hogan on the show. There was mention of him. There was no Sting on the show, despite there being a mention of him. It's like, where's Flair? Where's, um, where's DDP? And there was mention of DDP, but he didn't turn up. Um, well, Scott thinking, Hall, there was mention of him, but he wasn't there. Sting, uh, Sting is still selling the injuries. I think he's back um, uh, at the pay-per-view, if I'm not mistaken, okay. uh, or, or shortly thereafter. DDP has, you know, retired, walked off. He doesn't come back till 
November, I, I, I think. That's just storyline, though, right? Yeah. Rick is out till November-ish, I think. A lot of the big... And Hogan is gone forever now. So you're right. right. The, 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 the star power is really thinning out. Um, and, and I'm sure you were quite upset to know that uh, Luger is also currently on the outs as well. I didn't want to mention it because it <laughs> I was so upset about it. You know, Where's, where's my boy? Where's Lex? <laughs> but the Lexicist. Chris, I wanted to thank you for... Uh, not only the two of us, you know, that one afternoon coming up with the Hogan Bump Challenge, but thank you for everything you've done for the show. Coming on three times, making the theme song for us, making the Hogan Bump Challenge theme song. Uh, you know, you, you a part of you is on every episode oh. of this of this show. Well, I wouldn't have done it if I didn't enjoy it. Thank you. So I shouldn't have enjoyed. I shouldn't enjoy it. <laughs> but there's a part of me that does. I don't know what it is, but I do enjoy it. I was like, Chris is like our fat lady number three. Like, oh, yeah. He's not always around, but but when he is, it's, it's just a joy to, to have him. Yeah, I did struggle to get through the door this morning as well. <laughs> but I was just performing, you know. Well, Chris, uh, if people want more of you, where can they uh, find you on the internet? Um, I'm on Instagram and Twitter and SoundCloud. Like you said, it's just my name, Chris Obanovich. So if you can spell it, then you can find me. And thank you to the listener for completing another experiment with us. If you haven't already, please rate and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and just anywhere that they have podcasts these days. And if you have feedback for us, send it over to keepit2000pod at gmail.com. If you want more of me, I am at Brian Maxman all over the internet. Uh, now, Nate, as always, I'm going to throw it over to you to give the people the good word to hold them over until our next trial. Yes, again, want to send a shout out to all the postmarks out there for checking out this week's episode. Uh, I want to send a shout out to uh, Brother Chris for once again stepping aboard the satellite of hate. If you want to hear more from me, you can find me on Twitter at N, the number 8, M-O-Z-A-I-K, at Nate Mosaic on Twitter. And yes, you know, every week I like to end the show on a positive note, kind of a uh, a palate cleanser after all we've experienced Uh and it's usually in the form of some song lyrics that relate back to our experience in WCW this week. So uh, this is uh, uh, one of the great songs of American history. Uh, it's by a gentleman named Rockwell. Uh, it's called Somebody's Watching Me. And I want to relate this to our experience with Nitro. When I come home at night, I lock my doors real tight. Russo calls me on the phone, but I'm trying to avoid. Can the wrestlers on TV see me? Or am I just paranoid? Because when I'm in the shower, I'm afraid to wash my hair. Because I might open my eyes and see Chris Canyon standing there. People say I'm crazy, maybe a little touched. But maybe showers remind me of Psycho too much. And that's why I always feel like Vince Russo's watching me. Tell me, is it just a dream?